Father, as we stand ready to speak to your people and to echo your word, we declare that we need you. Oh, how we need you. Father, your people have come to hear from you. We know, Lord, that you are able to do miraculous things. You are able to use vessels of honor and of dishonor. You are able to cause your word to be heard even beyond the noises, whatever they might be. And so, Lord, as was prayed earlier, I pray that you would enrich every heart today for your glory and so that your name might be praised. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me. Lord, as I deliver this message today, in the name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people say, Amen. <clears throat> For a brief while, we are going to consider Peter's writing. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to consider two verses in particular. Verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. First Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And it reads, To those, sorry, Peter and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galactia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. There are two words, elect, exiles, elect, and exiles. And if you would permit me, that word, exile, that word elect, if you would permit me to use a substitute word, chosen, that I would want to say to us that the two words that will form the basis of our message that we will talk about today are chosen exiles, chosen exiles, chosen being a substitute word for elect. It means the same thing. You're elected, you're chosen in this instance, <coughs> in this context. So the two words that, we, that will be central to our message today are chosen and exiles. Peter refers to the Christians who were dispersed in what is today modern-day Turkey as chosen 
exiles. We want to see how Peter used these words as a basis of encouragement to believers who were suffering. Peter used these two words, chosen exiles, to believers who were suffering. And to bring practical application of Peter's message to us today, we will consider the context in which the original recipients of Peter's last letter, you'd consider their, the context in which the letter was written to them. What were their circumstances? And whether their circumstances presented a unique interpretation and application for Peter's message. In other words, we want to consider whether this message of chosen exile applied only to them, or whether there might be application for us today. Were their circumstances unique? Or could we find interpretation and application for the message that Peter conveyed to them, to us today, to the church today? We hope to show that Peter's doctrines of are universally and permanently relevant. And even in the Bahamas, those doctrines are becoming an increasing source of encouragement. Chosen exiles. Once we've done that, we want to look at each of those two words that are central to our message. Chosen and exiles in turn. My hope is that if you are a believer today, the truth of who you are will be sufficient to overwhelm the suffering you might be enduring now and perhaps what you will face in the days and years to come. And my hope is that if you are a non-believer today that you will see how God provides comfort in every situation and that God my prayer is that God would be pleased to save you the letter that Peter writes written, he says, to the chosen elect, and he says to the dispersion in Pontus, Galactia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter writes this letter to the church in modern-day Turkey, as we said. The church was suffering because of their belief. They were few in number. They were in the minority. They were in the minority. And they were espousing what was at the time a new doctrine. And no doubt they were being ridiculed and they were socially ostracized. They were different. They were impacted not just socially but financially as well. 
whether it was in the marketplace. They weren't invited to the, to the parties. In fact, they weren't going in any event. They were not well received and they were not thought of highly. The church, the members of the church were under distress. And Peter used these two words, chosen exiles, to encourage the church. Those must be powerful words. Chosen exiles. Here it is that these people are are suffering. Peter opens this letter. These words, chosen exiles. In the modern Western world, we, we've had a pretty good run in this part of the world, this part of the hemisphere. Unlike the churches that were the original recipients of Peter's message, until recently, we were largely respected and, and even left alone by the minority of pe persons who did not share our views of God or about God and the place of religion in society. Until recently, that is. Of course, it has been true for centuries and continues to be true that we have fellow Christians who are who bear the emotional, emotional and the social and even physical scars of their faith. That's true in other parts of the world, but we have largely been spared up to this point. But in other parts of the world, some have been put to death. And for sure, this message of Encouragement, absolutely. This message of encouragement would be for them. Chosen elect. You're God's chosen elect. But what about here in the Bahamas? Let me say that sadly things in our country are changing rapidly as it relates to the practice and even the acceptance of Christianity outside the four walls of the church. Church leaders are being ridiculed. Christian, Christian views are not as highly regarded as they once were. And being at the mouth of the United States and America in general, we are being influenced by its culture, which is changing rapidly. America is a place that is undergoing significant cultural changes. The internet, travel, globalization generally, the fact that we are linked economically. It seems to me that the Bahamas cannot escape the changes that we are seeing all around the world. How the views of Christians are not respected. And how it is that if you say that you stand for God, you can be sued. You could lose your license. So prepare for suffering as days and the years go by. We can expect 
that if you stand for Christ, that you will suffer. And so today, it might be true that we are not experiencing quite what the Christians in this part of the world to whom Peter wrote this message. Perhaps we are not experiencing the level of suffering that they experienced. But you wait long enough and things, unfortunately, are going to change. But the truth is, no matter where we live, no matter where we live and when we lived, First Peter has relevance. It always has relevance. No matter what your circumstances. No matter what your circumstances. First Peter always has relevance. As Karen Jobes wrote, Christians need to be transformed in their thinking about who they are in Christ and what that implies for relationships with others, believers, and with society, regardless of one's historical moment or geographical location. She goes on to say, First Peter encourages a transformed understanding of Christian self-identity and redefines how one is to live as a Christian in a world that is hostile to the basic principles of the gospel. That's always true. It's always true that the world is hostile to the basic principles of the gospel. It's always true that you and I are different. It's always true. It's always true that, in fact, oftentimes we don't want to live what the Bible says ourselves, much less those who are not believers. So that level of hostility always exists. We need, as she says, to be transformed in our thinking about who we are in Christ and how we interact with the society. The way a Christian interacts with the society ought to be different from the way the world interacts from the, with the society. And so that tension always exists. It always exists, and it will always exist. And therefore, this word that Peter writes, Peter writes to the church, First Peter, is as relevant to, to yesterday as it is today. Now, what is quite interesting, when we think about Peter's encouragement to the church, Peter says to them, be encouraged, you are chosen, elect. You are chosen exiles, he says. You are chosen exiles. Be encouraged, Peter says. Now one might think that Peter would offer a political or an economic or even a social solution to the problems that they were facing. One might think that that would be Peter's message to the Christians today. Here is a ten-point political plan. Here is a nine-point economic plan. But Peter offered no such, no such subjective, illusionary, or temporary solution. Instead, P 
Peter reminded the believers to whom he wrote that they are chosen. And he tells them by whom they are chosen. By the Trinity. Yes, when the culture turns on you and when life throws you a curveball, you got to put things into perspective. I think this is the way Peter, if Peter were here today, this is what he would say. When life turns on you, when the culture is not what you expect, got to put it into perspective. Yes, we have a tendency to measure things from a myopic and a narrow perspective, but Peter reminds us that there is a better way. Peter tells us there's a better way. He says, right where you are, in the circumstances that you're in, where things are difficult, where things are not working out the way you would like, Peter said you can stand there and you can have joy and satisfaction in knowing that you are God's chosen. You're God's chosen. And not only that, you are God's chosen exile. What does Peter mean by that? What is, P- what is Peter telling us? Why is this so important? Why is this such a big deal? Why is it that you can smile at the storm? That you can look at every circumstances and be content when you realize who you are. Peter says, get to know who you are, man. He says, you know who you are. You stand up straight. You won't be afraid of what's happening, of what they're saying about you. You won't be afraid that you're not, you wouldn't be concerned that you're not accepted by the crowd. And Peter uses the word chosen in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter simply means that God chose the believer to be saved and not the other way around. See what Peter says in verse 2. Peter says to, the, to those who are elect, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's a big deal. The fact that God has chosen you, and Peter writes, he has chosen believers according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Chosen by God. If you're a believer today, you have been chosen by God. Listen, guys, I know the guys can appreciate this. Imagine if you were out there going, playing sports and, and, uh, and Michael Jordan chose you to be on his basketball team. You know already you're a winner. There's a smile on your face. Chosen by Michael. Well, here Peter is saying, you've been chosen by God. And he's saying, that's why this is such an encouragement to the church. He's saying, nobody can top that. And we've got to see in a moment, Peter says, you haven't just been chosen. You have been chosen from the foundation of the earth. And he didn't just foreknow, but he foreordained it. He chose you 
chose you, not for anything that you've done or will do. But he chose you. He put his hands on your life. This choosing is what we call the doctrine of election. Bible supports this doctrine, which for many is hard to accept. We see it throughout Scripture. Consider Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. So what did he do? He chose us, God chose us in him before the world was created. That's what the Bible says. We were chosen, believers were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says. That's not what I say. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we should be blameless before him. Then he goes on to say, in love he predestined us. Predestination. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, chosen before the foundation of the world. Peter says, consider yourself chosen, whatever your circumstances. You don't have money in your pocket? Peter said, you're chosen. People laughing at you. Peter said, you are chosen. Peter says the society disregards your views. Peter says you're chosen, chosen by God. He says it trumps everything. It trumps everything. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what the circumstances. He says you are chosen. Now just in case there might be some who and not persuaded by the doctrine of, the, of election. I want to remind you of what Paul writes about Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 22, you remember how Paul writes about God having chosen between Jacob and Esau, how that it was God's divine choice. Paul writes in, in verse 9 of, of Romans 9, For this is what the promise said. Well, in verse 10 he says, And not only so, but 
when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Notice that. These two boys had done nothing good or bad. Paul says that very specifically. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Sarah was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God demonstrating his sovereign choice. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, what shall we say then? He says, what shall we say then? If God says, I've made a choice. I've, I've looked at these two and I have made a choice. Not be, before they were born, I made a choice. That the older will serve the younger. Not for anything that they have done. And Paul says, what shall, I, what shall we say then? And he asks another question. Is there injustice on God's part? And he answers, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'm telling you, this choice, having been chosen by God, is a big deal. We have been chosen by God. He decided in eternity past to have mercy on us, to choose us. And then consider 2 Timothy 2.10. Paul writes, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. There is no question about God's sovereign choice in Scripture, how God chooses whom he will save. But I realize, I realize that it is our nature to, to think that to think that either we chose God or perhaps God is not righteous because we think maybe he condemned others to hell. Well, the truth is we don't choose God. And the fact that we would think so just is a demonstration of our own pride. And this notion that God condemns others to hell is not true at all. The truth is that God doesn't condemn anybody to hell. God just chooses to elect some, to put his hand on some. Peter sets out in these two verses that we are examining, that not only are Christians chosen by God the Father, 
the entire Trinity is involved in the walk. I'm telling you, Peter is saying, you've got to be excited about this stuff. You are chosen, and it's not just... He says the entire Trinity is involved in the work of your salvation. Look at what Peter says about the involvement of, of the Holy Spirit. He says to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Oftentimes when we speak of sanctification, we are thinking about our own efforts in pursuit of holiness. Here I believe that Peter is writing about the work of the Holy Spirit in the process of salvation to grant believers imputed sanctification. That is to say, the act of the Holy Spirit sets the believer apart so that he might serve God. The Holy Spirit was actively involved in our salvation, giving to us imputed sanctification, setting us apart for God. But chosen by God before the foundation, God the Father, from the foundation of the earth, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Moreover, we see the role of the Son in the process of salvation. Peter says, to those who are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter makes two distinct points here. First, believers are saved so that we might be obedient to Christ. Of course, obedience is expected in an ongoing way. But in the act of salvation, it is the acceptance of Jesus as Lord. Indeed, Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except by me. But we have, we see here, Peter is telling us that Jesus Christ is actively involved in our salvation. The second aspect of Jesus' involvement in the process of salvation has to do with his death. Peter writes here about the sprinkling of blood referring to the death of Jesus Christ. One writer writing on this clause opined that while Peter could have had in view the sprinkling of blood for the forgiveness of sins as found in Leviticus 4 or Exodus 12 where the sprinkling of blood on the doorposts on the night of the Passover was a sign that the angel of death would preserve God's people it is likely that it referred to Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8, where Moses confirms the covenant between the Lord and his chosen people. Here the people made a commitment to God while they were traveling from a foreign land and they were sprinkled with blood. We see later in the chapter that God's glory descends and stays with them 
to the promised land. These foreigners traveling to the promised land, chosen by God, sprinkled with the blood at the time, sprinkled with the blood of animals. But we have a better covenant. We have a better covenant, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. The writer goes on to say, and I quote, Given this background, Peter wants his converted Gentile audience to understand that they are in the same sort of situation as God's people in Exodus chapter 24. Like them, they have been taken out of their old home. They have now been constituted as God's chosen, covenanted people through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ and their obedient response. They must now commence their pilgrimage through the wilderness to the promised land. And as they travel, they will also know God's glory resting on them even amidst difficulties. Even amidst difficulties. So when Peter speaks here about us being chosen by God, Peter has in view a covenant, a commitment that we make that the blood was sprinkled on us and we are covenanted people and we are indeed making a pilgrimage just as was done with the Israelites as they left Egypt. God's chosen people, covenanted people through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ to obey him. And we know that the glory, the Holy Spirit is with us to lead us and to guide us and to direct us even amidst difficulties that we face and encounter. But that's just half of the story. Peter said, you have been chosen. You have been chosen. But the other word that Peter uses, he says, you are an exile. Peter says to the church, by way of encouragement, you are an exile. You know, normally when somebody tells you you're an exile, that's not a word that should encourage you. That's not a word that's normally intended to encourage one. But in this context, Peter says, listen, you need to view yourself as a chosen exile. In normal everyday language, when we use the word exile, we refer to someone who is in a country where he or she has limited status. Perhaps someone who is not a citizen. It must be understood that Peter was not here referring to believers as non-citizens in that traditional sense of the word. It wasn't talking about them not being citizens of the places or the countries where they lived. That's not what Peter was talking about. Peter was speaking more broadly. If Peter were here today, he wouldn't say, just because you don't have a Bahamian passport, you are an exile. That's not what Peter was talking about. 
Peter is talking about a more enduring citizenship, one that is out of this world. Peter was saying to the church, this world is not your home. You're just passing through. Peter was saying that this world, this earth, what we can see, this is not it. This is but temporary. This is going to pass away. There's something more eternal. You are an exile. You are away from your home. You are a chosen exile. Chosen by God from the foundation of the earth. And where you are today is not your home. Peter will say that's the perspective that you should have. And when you have that perspective, when you realize that this thing is yours, when you realize that you've been chosen by God, and this place is not your home, think about it. What can come against you? What can really beat you down? Nothing really. When you have that perspective in view, when you have in view that you can wear this thing loosely, it's not your home. It's not your home. You're not going to be here permanently. You have a home that's already been built for you. That's what Peter was saying. Peter was saying, no, listen, this place is not your home. And Peter, in, chap in this book, First Peter, Peter devotes much of this book telling Christians what it means to live as exiles. And, and in this book, which you are encouraged to read, he talks about how we, an exile ought to deal with sin. An exile ought to deal with authority and relationships and the workplace and character issues. Peter says, you're an exile. You're an exile, and this is how you ought to live. You're a chosen exile. But can I tell you, I want to tell you some, some character traits that we should see in an exile. First one that comes to mind is humility. Humility. The truth is, we did nothing to earn our salvation. It was the sovereign will of God. Yes, we are, we are beneficiaries of sovereign grace. It is sovereign because God is over the entirety of the universe. That's what makes it sovereign. God is sovereign. He is over the entirety of the universe. And he does whatever pleases him. He is sovereign. No one can Thought his will. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Whatever pleases him. And if that were not true, if it were not true that God is sovereign, then he can't be God. So if he is God, he is sovereign. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, we read, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of the heaven. 
and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? God is sovereign. And he extends to us sovereign grace. Grace, that which we do not deserve, gives it to us. Sovereign God extends to us sovereign grace. There is no place for pride. There is just place for humility in our hearts. As we consider this grandiose thing that we have, having been chosen by God, a sovereign God, from the foundation of the earth. No one can snatch us out of his hands. And the life that we will live is far greater than the life we now live. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. It is amazing. It is amazing grace. It is sovereign grace. But what other attribute might we have, ought we to have, as a people in exile? Chosen exile. We ought to live with a sense of gratitude. Gratitude to the sovereign God who saved us. It is true that we owe him our very lives. And the truth is, when you really think about it, even that's not enough. Even our very lives are not enough. How can a mortal, how can a mortal repay a sovereign God? It's not possible. How can a mortal repay a sovereign God? He can't. The best we can do is obey him. The best we can do is extend gratitude to him. How else might the reality of us being chosen exile find expression in our lives. It ought to give to us a sense of security and permanency of our salvation. There should be no doubt about it. We are secured. Paul writes, Peter writes to us that the Trinity was involved in our salvation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, chosen from the foundation of the earth by a sovereign God. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled for us. We should have a sense of security and a sense of permanency about our salvation. No one can snatch us from his hand. When God does a work, God does work of salvation, he does it completely. 
So you and I, despite our shortcomings, despite our failures, you and I can rest in this truth when God saves us. He saves us completely. You've got to give me an amen there. Amen. amen. And how else might we be affected? What else might it look like? You got to wear this world loosely. You know, when you visit a foreign country, you don't ordinarily get caught up in its internal affairs. You know, you leave that for the citizens. You don't vote. You don't get involved in their politics. You stay out of certain things. You might have views, but you keep those to yourself. Sometimes it depends. But you know there is, you know that there is no permanency in your stay in that foreign country. And so you always keep your eyes fixed on your return to your country. Much more than we as believers should be focused on heaven. We ought to wear this world loosely. Not to be disturbed. Too much by the things that are going on around us. Obviously, we are, are expected to be salt and light in this world. We, we ought to understand that there are some things that we are not going to be able to change. And then our attitudes, our decisions, our attitudes and our ambitions should be influenced by an awareness of our eternal destiny. Let me say that again. The decisions you make, the attitude that you have, your goals and your ambitions should be influenced by your awareness of your eternal Destiny, this place is not your home. And so the decisions you make, the attitude that you have, the ambition that you have, should all be influenced by your eternal destiny. You should, we as believers should view all of these things, should view life in general through the prism of the home that awaits us on the other side. So if you believe it today, if you are a believer today, aren't you glad you're a chosen exile? You're a chosen exile. You can leave this place today saying, I'm a chosen exile. I look at your faces and I don't see a lot of happy people. Maybe you're hungry. But I got to tell you, you are a chosen exile. That's a big deal for a believer, a chosen exile. Chosen exile. There's nothing the world can throw at you that can match that description. Nothing the world can throw at you. When you're persecuted for Christ's sake, 
you can declare that you're a chosen exile. When you're wrongly talked about, you, you can declare, I'm a chosen exile. Then you can't stretch the money far enough. You could still say, I'm a chosen exile. When the children are misbehaving, you can say, I'm a chosen exile. When they're demanding that you, you do something that is totally against your conscience and your scripture and the scriptures. And you refuse to do it and you lose your promotion. Or they say, man, you're not one of the boys. They don't invite you anymore or they don't give you that thing that you think you deserve. You can say, I'm a chosen exile. This place is not my home. I'm a chosen exile. Chosen exile. What a perspective to have. What a perspective to have. And I pray to God that we all have the mindset and the perspective of a chosen exile. Let us pray.